Hope you guys are, are doing good. Thanks so much for being here uh, uh, this week. We're in a, a series on the book of Philippians, and uh, we've just gotten into Philippians chapter 2 in talking about... Um, and talking about what the Apostle Paul is saying to this church in Philippi. And he's speaking to them and he, he's, he's telling them that he wants their thinking to change. He repeatedly says this word think or phreneo. Um, it's the same, same they tra- it's translated variously, but a lot of times it's mind. And so what he's really trying to tell us is he wants us to change our mind about the way that we act and the way that we respond and the way that we do things. Uh, But too frequently, that is uh, very difficult to do. It's very difficult to try to change the way that I feel about certain circumstances. In fact, you may be stuck in in relational discord with people uh, right now uh, in in some way. It it could be in in some friendships or or some type of a a work relationship, or it could be that... um, that within the context of your marriage, like you guys are uh, battling it out and you're going back and forth at, at each other and, and having difficulty even coming to a place of really uh, peace, peace in the home kind of a deal. Our, our world is, is so much characterized by a lack of peace. And one of the things that Christians oftentimes do very poorly is, is represent Christ well in our relationships. But that's in large part because we come to God or we come to church or we come to get something from him. We just want him to fix things or we want him to fix our spouse or, or, or things are just not going well. And so we, we, we come and we're, we're hoping that God does, does something and makes things better. And as, as we've said uh, very often uh, in the past, that, that often turns into just kind of a flakiness that as soon as things get better, I just take off and I and I go do something else because my life is better now. But really, the truth is, is that prosperity or, or peace or things like that are not necessarily uh, just, uh, just markers of, of a good life. Oftentimes, we, we can come to a point where we are uh, prospering finally, and maybe we have some money in our pocket, but what ends up happening is that we don't really even, um, we haven't even really gone to Jesus uh, to really understand what he wants from us. And so our thinking is kind of maligned, and our world has this problem with this, this messed up thinking, and, and our marriages have this problem, and we get stuck in these ruts, and we don't move out of them. We don't move out of them because we, we cannot seem to change how we think. As much as we try, as much as we um, are working towards that, we can't seem to make those changes. But the Apostle Paul is speaking to a group of people that are fighting. Uh, they are in the midst of relational discord. And so at the beginning of, of chapter two here, and really prior to that, um, what he's telling them is he wants them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. He wants them to live lives that are lived in relation to the gospel. See, Christianity isn't just about being a moral person or something along those lines. The, the prayer is and the hope is and, and, and really the goal of the Christian life is to progressively become sanctified, to progressively become somebody who's becoming more like Jesus. Uh, but too frequently that doesn't happen, and so we're just kind of stuck in the rut, as I said. But what these people are doing is that they're, they're in the midst of some kind of relational turmoil. Paul has left. He's left somebody uh, there, and Paul's in prison now. He's the guy that started the church, uh, but he's left somebody in charge there. But really what's going on is that they are in the midst of relational discord, and so he's speaking to them, even though he really loves this church. 
He loves these people. He loves who they are. He loves hanging out with them. And so um, what he wants them to get right is he wants them to get their relationships right. And so what would it take for us to get our relationships right? What would it take for us to see ourselves in this passage? I want to read it from the top of, of uh, where we've been uh, coming from here. Let me read from verse 27. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture here, or a fair amount, and we're really only going to cover about three verses. But uh, chapter 1, verse 27, if you start there, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now keep in mind, that's not happening. That's, that's, not, that's not a reality uh, with these people. And so he's saying, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at what he just, he's repeating that. He said, you guys aren't one. You're not, you're not one in, in, in mind, in love, in spirit. You're not there. You're not thinking together. And then he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Isn't that difficult? We covered that this last week. It's so difficult to, to Paul's not saying don't ever consider your, your own needs. I mean, certainly that needs to take place. But he's saying don't just look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. Look to what, what someone else has an issue with. Look, look at what they're dealing with. Look at what their problem is with you. What are their interests? I, I battle it out with people sometimes over consistently trying to show them the main problem in your marriage is you, oftentimes. The main problem within this, this fight that you're having is the fact that you are only looking to your own interests. You're not looking to the interests of that person. You're only thinking about yourself. Yeah, but you, you wouldn't believe what she's doing to me, or you wouldn't believe what he's, what he's doing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what they said to me, how they slighted me in my work. You, you just, you wouldn't, yeah, I would, because I'm, I'm human. I would understand that. I would feel that. I do know what that's like. I'm not Jesus, so I don't do this perfectly. In fact, I have to battle it out with myself over these very same things. But Paul's message to us is that we're not just to look to our own interests, but we're to look at the interests of others. 
and see what their issue is. Now, we can say that, and you could, you could walk away from that. You could do your Bible reading in the morning or whenever you do that, and you could read that passage, and you say, you know what? I'm going to start looking to their interests. But here's the problem with that, is that that often falls flat, and it falls flat because of this, because all you're trying to do is you're trying to look to their interests so that your interests are fulfilled. All that you're trying to do is that you are trying to make them act in a way that you want them to act, and so you're essentially just manipulating them. So you might begin to look after their interests, but it's not because you're gracious and you're merciful and, and, and what have you, and because you just have love for this person. You're looking after their interests because you have love for yourself. And ultimately, that is self-centered from the word go. And so our biggest problem is often that we can never seem to get out of this vicious cycle in our relationships because we cannot seem to let it go and begin to look after their interests. And so he says this. Here's the answer to that. Here's the answer to that age-old problem of, I'm looking after your, your interests so that you help my interests so that I can be profitable, so that I can be happy, so that I can enjoy life. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to stop right there. Now, the first thing that he says at the top there is he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the mind, again, is the word phreneo, and that is have this thinking among yourselves. And the way that you have this thinking is by looking at Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus Christ and you really get into his life and you understand him and you know Jesus and you're following him, you're, you're walking alongside of him, meaning, meaning you're hearing from Jesus through his word, through the preaching of the word, through the songs of God, through, uh, through Christian friends and things of that nature. When you're walking with Jesus on a regular basis, what you're going to see is that you're going to see the nature of who Jesus Christ is. And he says that when you look at Jesus, you see this. You see this example. In addition to this, it could also mean this. And we're not exactly sure what Paul meant. Is it just the example? Or is it when you are in Christ, when you have relationship with Christ, when you're walking with him, that there's this spiritual thing that takes place that when you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and you already have the resources available to be able to change your thinking. Now, I believe both of those are true. And what our problem tends to be is that we don't believe that we have the ability to do that. We don't believe that we have the ability with the power of the Spirit of God working in and through us to enable us to walk in the way that Jesus would have us walk. But what this is saying is that when you look at Jesus and all that he is, the life of Christ is possible. It is possible. Now, you, you, when you think about how am I going to look after their interests without looking at my own, Paul says, change your thinking, look at Jesus. Change your thinking, look at Jesus. 
And what do we say when we, when we come for help? Say, whatever about that Jesus stuff, I just need you to practically tell me what I need to do to make life better. What we don't say oftentimes is, what do I need to know about Jesus? What do I need to have further understanding about Jesus in order to make things different in my life? So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. Now that you can have a misunderstanding about this, which is like he was in this God form mode. He's like a transformer and he went from like this van or something and now he's like this crazy transformer, uh, something like that. So he's in God mode at this point. He was in God mode. But no, what this is saying is the word form there is morphe. And morphe means these are the essential attributes. He was in he had the essential, the essential attributes of God, Theo. So his, his role, his lifestyle, his existence was God. That is who he is. So even though he is in the form of God, he, is in the, uh, he has the essential attributes of God, he is God, he's going to go on to say something else. But let's look at that for a second. So Paul briefly says this. He's in the form of God, but what is, what is he actually getting at? What, let's, let's break that down for a second. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 1, John says this. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So John is talking about Jesus, and so he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, why would he use the word, capital W, word, as a name for Jesus. Well, it's because of this. Because philosophically during that time, there was this idea of the word and the word being the thing that animates all of life and moves all things. But then there's also an Old Testament understanding, which Jews, God-fearing Jews, would know. They would know about the Old Testament. They would know that in the Old Testament, God speaks and it takes place. God, God talks and it comes into being. And so he says, in the beginning was the word. So in the beginning, he had no beginning. He just is. He was. He was existing. He's eternally existent. And then secondly, it says, and the word was with God. So not, o- not only has he always existed, but he's with God. Okay, does that mean he's not God? Well, don't, don't, don't stop right there. And the word was God. That seems confusing, doesn't it? So he's in the beginning. He has, no, he has no beginning. He's eternally existent from eternity past, theologians like to say. So he's eternally existent. He's with God. And then along with that, he was God. And just so we're clear, John communicates it again. He says he was in the beginning with God. This is God, and he was in the beginning with God, and he is the Word. And so what we have is we have at least two distinct beings. We find out later that there are three distinct uh, beings that are all together that make up the Trinity. And so he's saying this. He's saying he's distinct, and yet he's the same. He's distinct, and yet he's the same. So verse 3 from John chapter 1 says, All things were made through him. So he's eternally existent as God, and he is the creative 
force of God. All things were made through him. So everything came through Jesus, the word. It comes through him. It's, it's a part of him. And then it says, and, not, and without him was not anything made that was made, which means this, that Jesus was not created, which is a major heresy of many cults of our day, and in that time as well. Jesus is not a created being. So he is eternally existent as God. He's the creative force behind God, and he is uncreated. And without him was not anything made that, that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And what is he doing? He's, he, in him is life. Like all things are sustained. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, where did I put that? Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It says that Jesus is, is the, it's coming through him, it's for him. He's sustaining it. He's, he's, a, he's a part of it. He's sustaining life. He's what causes all things to exist and all things to be sustained. Think about what Paul just said there. Who, though he was in the form of God, what, he, what did he say right there was he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about all of these characteristics that he has, and he's saying this is the person that we're talking about. In fact, John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we've, so the word this, this, this being who's with God and was God, he's the creator God, he's eternally existent God, he comes and he takes the word, becomes flesh, and he dwells among us. And so what does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? So let's finish what Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 6. So who, though he was in the form of God, think about Jesus, who has all of these characteristics and all of these defining qualities about who he is. Like, he is God. He's the creator God. And he's in the form of God. But yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, let's think about that for a second. There's another way that that could go wrong. And that is that, like, yeah, he might be kind of up there. He might be deity. But he's not equal with God. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 says that he's not equal. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not that he's saying that he was not equal with God, that, that he's a part of the Godhead. He's not saying that he's not a part of the Godhead. He's not saying that he's not a part of the Trinity. That's not what he's communicating. He's saying, he's saying that his equality with God, the way that he exists, he's with God and he was God. His equality was not something that he was to grasp. Now, the word grasp is very important here. This word means to be forcibly retained, to be clung to, to hang on to it. And so 
what, what he's talking about here is he's, he is all of these things, and yet that equality with God, the thing that causes him to be equal with God, he, even he did not believe that that is something that should be clung to or grasped onto or something that should be held onto for dear life. Now, what is that thing that Jesus did not hang on to for dear life, but freely gave up? It says, but emptied himself. Now, emptied himself. We'll come back to that last question, but emptied himself. What does that mean? Does that mean that when Jesus came in the form of a, of, a, of a baby, a human, a human baby, through Christmas, basically. Does that mean that when that took place, does that mean that he was no longer God? So Jesus essentially emptied. He let go of everything that is, that is his godness and takes up everything that is humanness. It does, does it mean that he's no longer God, but now he's just in the flesh. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he emptied himself. He, he emptied himself by putting something back, right? How did he empty himself? Look at the next part. By taking the form of a servant. The form, same word. The form of a servant. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus does not cease to be God. He's with God. He was God, creator, sustainer of all things everywhere. He doesn't cease to be God. He adds something to his nature. He adds something. And what does he add? He's born in the likeness of men. He's, he's born in the likeness of men, and he becomes a servant. Another way to say that word servant would be he becomes a slave. He becomes a slave. And so what, what's taking place here? So he empties himself he take, by taking on the form of a servant, and he's born in the likeness of men. So what does this do to him? What does this cause to have, what, what does this cause to happen in his life? Well, it's a little bit like this. People do not understand this very well, and so some people have described it as though you go to a car lot, you see this incredible car that's, that's on the showroom floor. It's inside of the building there, and, you take, and you're like, man, I'd really like to drive that. And uh, the, uh, you talk to the salesman, say, hey, could I, could I drive that, please? He says, yes, and so you take it out uh, on some uh, dirty country roads. You, you, you spin out, you do cookies, whatever. You get the thing completely covered in mud. You come back in, you park it on the showroom floor. And what takes place? The guy is like, what did you do to my car? What did you do to my car? Well, I didn't do anything to your car. You just can't quite see what was there and what is there, what still is there. It's, that's a little bit of, about, about like what we're talking about. That Jesus 
in all of his shine and all of his gleam and all that he is, it has now been covered over a bit with the muddiness that is humanity. He's covered over with this idea of being a slave. And what is covered? What is covered? What is, what is emptied? What, is, what does he lose in that? He, lose, he loses the ability to see the glory. He, we lose the ability to see the full glory of who Jesus is on some level when we see Jesus just in the flesh because what's being covered over is all that makes him God is all that causes him to be seen as God. And in fact, one of the, one of the uh, most important characteristics of Jesus is that he has this glory. In fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at everything that was just described there about Jesus. He is, he doesn't just have some of God's glory. He is like the radiance of the glory of God. He is this, this, this shining, gleaming uh, person of God. And yet he chose to cover that over. He chose to cover that over. You see what John says back at ver- John chapter 1, verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, what happens to you when you get to know Jesus is you get to see his glory. You get to understand who he is, but it's clouded because you can't quite see it because of what happened is that he emptied himself out. He empties himself out by taking on the likeness of man and the form of a servant. He takes this on, and what takes place is this, is that his glory is covered. His glory is not fully seen. Now, what does that mean? See, Jesus was willing to set aside his glory here on earth. He was willing to set it aside. He was was willing to put it on hold. How many of us are willing to do that? How many of us are willing to do that? See, one of our biggest problems in the midst of our, our, our fights, our disagreements, even the things just like politically speaking, the, the things that are work. We always, always come back to marriage because that's, that's, <laughs> that's where a lot of the arguments happen a lot of times. But just all the way through it, what's happening in those moments? What's taking place? What's happening in our life as we're trying to get ahead? Like there's this constant hunger to make something of ourselves oftentimes. Or we've given up that desire and we've just thrown it all away and so we just uh, self-depreciate. We just, we just put ourselves down or whatever. Why? 
it's because we can't seem to get to this level. We can't seem to get to this level. We can't seem to get this recognition. We can't seem to be noticed. We can't seem to get to the place where we want to be. We're, we're, we keep grasping for these things. We keep grasping for them. And we're, we're going after them. And when we get something that we believe that really fulfills us, that really matters, that really is causing us to feel like we finally got something, then we cling to it. We hang on to it. We, 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 we will not let it go. That's what you see in the story of Abraham. When God tells him, he says, take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him up on this hill and I want you to sacrifice him. And then Abraham's about to sacrifice his son and God says, stop, don't do it because now I know that you love me. Now I know. Now I know. Why? Because the one thing, the one thing that he was looking for, the one thing that he was wanting, the one thing that he needed more than anything, the one thing that he could have grasped onto, clung to, forcibly retained, he chose not to forcibly retain. Why, why would you forcibly retain something like that? Because in their day, family was everything. Having a son, especially a firstborn son, was everything. It's your future. It's your pride, your joy. It's all of those things. And it's just an example of this, and it's pointing to something even greater, which is this, is that it's not that we're to act like Abraham, although we should. It's not that we can perfectly carry that out. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that. Jesus has all of these incredible qualities. He's, he's, he's not just with God, but he is God. He's eternally existent. Look at the, the majesty, the, the radiance, the glory, everything that he has, he gives up by taking on the form of a servant. But we don't often do that. We don't follow in his footsteps because of this. We've never gotten over the glory hunger that you and I have. We can't let an argument go because then I would be wrong. I can't admit that I was wrong. I can't look out for your best interest and say, and say you know what? The fact that you see or feel like I am wrong or that I have wronged you is hurtful to me that I'm, I'm hurt that you're hurt. I'm, I'm hurt that you would feel this way about our relationship. But instead of saying that, it's we're grasping because we constantly want this glory. We constantly have to be right. We constantly have to have something. We'll cling to whatever it takes to cause us to be glorified on some level. So as, as fights continue in your life, as you continue to, to, to be fighting with other people, whoever it is, family members, coworkers, whoever it is, the one thing you can be sure of is the reason why that fight continues is that you, not the other person, you 
have a constant need for glory. You have a constant need for for glory. The reason why you can never feel fulfilled, the reason why you can never have this satisfaction that you have made it and that you've finally arrived is because you're always looking for glory in all of the wrong places. You're looking for glory from your fellow man. You're looking for glory in, in your work, in your schooling, You're looking for those things, and you will always have that sense that something is not right. You will always have that sense that things are not the way that they're supposed to be until you realize that that need, that, that need for fulfillment, that need for glory is ultimately what the problem is. It's grasping. It's clinging to. It's going after those things. And so what what does Jesus do? He is still glorified. He is still radiant. And yet he takes on himself. And in that empties himself. It's, It's obscured his glory. He takes onto himself humanity in the flesh. He he comes into the flesh. And he becomes a servant. He, he, he becomes a servant and he serves other people. He's born in a stable. He's, he, there, there's no regard for him. There's no glory in that. There's no pictures of, uh, of halos. No actual pictures besides, besides the fact that they didn't, didn't have cameras. Right? But it's, it's not like Jesus was sitting there with a halo. It's not like it was totally obvious as, as to who he was, there, were, there wasn't like some craziness happening there. It's that Jesus comes down and is completely humbled just in one act. And that is his incarnation. That's him becoming man. Even though he's fully God, he exists in the form of God, he totally takes this on. And he becomes a baby. And he does what babies do. I mean, he's messing his diaper, he's having to breastfeed, he's completely dependent on a mother and the people around him. He's completely dependent. Think about what that does. It's, it's, it's him coming down. It's his condescension. It's him coming down and saying, I'm giving up my ability to shine forth my glory. I'm giving that up so that I can become like them in every meaningful way, so that I can become like them. And then as you look at his life and you look at what he does and how he acts and how how he responds, he's walking through life. He doesn't have a place to live. He's with a bunch of of dorks who are constantly like, hey, Jesus, can I sit on your right-hand side and me on your left? And like, wouldn't that be awesome? And Jesus is like, you're such idiots, gosh. I mean, those are disciples, so we don't want to make fun of them. But seriously, see, James and John, when they ask Jesus that, they're doing exactly what you and I do as we're clinging to our glory, as we're going after the thing that we, find, that we feel like is the most glorious thing. We're saying, we're essentially telling Jesus, I want to sit on your right and I want to sit on your left. 
I want to be equal with you, Jesus. I want to find my glory. I want to find uh, my reputation. I want to find my fulfillment apart from you, Jesus. How many times have we prayed that prayer? Think about the prayers that you pray. I want to find my fulfillment apart from you, Jesus. We ought to just be honest about it. Instead of of praying to know God and to walk with him and things like that, we find ourselves praying about things that are really just about us fulfilling our desire to be equal with Jesus. Which is, by the way, the problem, the the biggest problem with humanity. Is that we've always tried to be equal with God. We've always tried to take his glory. We've always tried to say what's right and wrong for my life. We've always tried to ascend to that level. You see it all throughout the scriptures. You see that all throughout the scriptures. But then Jesus comes along and he, and he does this and he's hanging out with these guys and he's teaching them and he's showing them the way. And he's repeatedly having to show them. And he's, he's repeatedly having to show them. In fact, in, um, I believe it's Mark, yeah, Mark 10. That same story I was just telling you about. James and John, can we sit on your right? Can we sit on your left? And Jesus says, you're not going to do that, but you're going to be baptized with the same thing that I'm baptized with. You're going to die. It's going to be horrible. Like, it's like, can I be really popular and glorious? Nope, but you're going to die. How's that sound? It's like when my kids ask for candy and I say, no, but I can give you a knuckle sandwich. And they don't like that. It says in Mark 10, 41, that the other disciples here, the James and John, have said this. <laughs> we want to be first. We want to be the greatest. And they all become indignant at James and John. And what's indignant? Indignant means... These guys are ticked. Who do you think you are? You are such a punk. Why would you sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus? Why would you be in a position of power and authority? Who gives you the right? They're in a fight. They're in relational discord. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, an overbearing authority. This is the world. You know that this is the way that the world acts. You know that this is the way that the world responds. You know that these are the things that they are doing. He says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Look at that. Look at those words right there. Remember we are talking about form of God? What's that say? It says a lot. Jesus like gives, hey, I don't want you to act like this because I am the Son of Man. Like I am God in the flesh. And even I didn't do that. Like, I, I wish it was a little bit more obvious. Like, was Jesus just like, even I'm not doing that. What? Like, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. 
You look at John 13. We're not going to have time to go into it. But what happens? All the disciples get together. They're, they're there. There's nobody there to wash feet. There's nobody there to, to, to sit down and, and scrub the manure and the disgustingness off of their feet as it's been opened to the elements with a sandal on and then the, the smell that comes from feet sometimes. Like, I should take my boot off right now and let you smell it. <laughs> We're sitting there hanging out with some people. I'd take my boots off, set them in between me and my wife and I was, and I very discreetly, you're pro- I, I don't remember who it was, but I very discreetly grabbed my boots and was like, ah! You know, it, it stunk so bad. But think about this, about the foot, the foot washing thing, right? There's nobody there to wash the feet. There's nobody there. Many commentators say that really only the, per, the only person who would wash feet would be a slave. It'd be somebody who uh, has really no position or power or authority or glory at all. They have no access to that whatsoever. And so that's why they've been reduced to a foot washer. So even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and he shows it regularly. Think about it. He's in the form of God, and yet God in the flesh takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, and he begins to sit down and scrub the feet of his disciples. He's God. He's not just with God, but he is God. He's eternally existent. He exists in radiance and glory. And yet he's washing the feet? See, what I think the problem is, is that when you just look at Jesus as your example, hey, he's a man, and he did that, and I should follow in Jesus' footsteps. No, he's the God-man. He's God in the flesh. He's everything that I've already stated. The gloriousness, the magnificence of who God is in Jesus. And it's not just Jesus, my example. You wash the feet, I should wash your feet. No, it's Jesus. Like, of all the people in the entire universe, there should be washing someone's feet. The last person is Jesus. And he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. He came not to be served, but to serve. He allowed his glory to be covered up. Now, what would it take for you and I to come to that point where we say, I'm going to stop telling my spouse that they're wrong. And I'm just going to assume that our argument right now is really just a glory problem. And it's my glory problem. I just won't let it go. I'm grasping at straws. It's, there's nothing there. I'm not even glorious. What would it take? What would it take? for you to drop it. Just drop the argument at work. You've defamed Christ enough. You continue to 
to essentially throw mud on his glory in the way that you've treated somebody at your work or in the way that you've allowed an argument to persist, just to drop it. Because why? Because you're grasping at straws. You're trying to get your glory independent of Jesus. What would it take for you to find ultimate fulfillment, not in how well you do in your work, not in the success of your family, not in the way that you're perceived and all of these things, or how many friends that you have? What would it take for you to say, I'm no longer going to pursue this? I want to tell you that the only way The only way that this can happen is if when you see Jesus and you see him doing that and the fact that he has, I mean, to put it in human terms, what, you have no business, Jesus, being on your knees for me. And more than that, why would you go to the cross for me? Why would you, of all people, go and try to to pay for my sin Why would you do that? It's because of this. It's because when we finally say, okay, my reputation, my glory is not going to come from the arguments that I win or the job that I have or my sense of fulfillment, but my sense of glory is going to come from Jesus alone. I'm going to share in his glory. What, What happens? What happens there? Well, it's when I receive him as Savior that now I get a sense that I'm, I'm with him, that he's with me, that I'm acknowledged. In fact, C.S. Lewis has this fantastic quote from The Weight of Glory. He says, The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. It's just this longing to be right. It's this longing to have fulfillment. It's this longing to have a sense of glory in us. He says, and surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. When you find your glory in God, when you say, I have no glory of my own, I can't do enough to get right with you, God. Like if you're here today and you're saying, I've decided that I want to turn over a new leaf and I want to make things better in my life, you're you're still running and gunning for your own glory. You're trying to find a way that you can fix yourself up, make yourself better, act a little bit better. You're still not looking to Jesus. You're looking to be equal with Jesus. But when you see I have no glory of my own, that it only comes in Christ, 
then and only then can you make real and meaningful changes in life as you consistently apply that same principle over and over and over and over again to your life. So if we talk at some point and you're in some type of relational discord or, or this lack of fulfillment, the thing that I'm going to continually bring you back to is how does the gospel speak to what you're dealing with? How does the gospel speak to this issue? What's going on here? It ultimately comes down to this, that Jesus, although he was rich, he became poor for your sake. He, that's what he did for you. And so how can you not do that for others? How can you not have a sense that he loves you so much that he poured his life out for you that he gave himself up for you, that he emptied himself of this. This is the application of the gospel. And until you get that, you will not solve these other things. The gospel must be applied over and over and over again. It is the salve that we put on a wound. It is the bandage that we repeatedly apply to our lives. It is consistently over and over and over again what we put on our lives to allow us to become the people that God has called us to be. And if we don't do that, if we can't find a way to consistently do that, if we're not coming to Christian friends or the word or to uh, the, you know, the, the, the church and, and finding ways, like how can I apply the gospel? If we're not able to do that, I don't, I don't know that we have hope that we are in him. If all you want is to be glorified in your relationships, in your, in your work, in all of these things, I don't know that you have hope that you're in him. The answer to that is to... Become his child by placing faith in him alone. Not in yourself, but by placing faith in him and in his glory and everything that he's done for you. That's the way that it happens. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I... I want to ask that by the power of your spirit that you would take what you want to be heard this morning and impress it on our lives. Lord, I'm, I'm asking that you would fill us with the ability to see and know and understand uh, what you have for us. God, I'm praying that you'll point out for us areas where we've been self-seeking, where we've been grasping, we've been clinging uh, to a glory that we've just been chasing all of our lives that you clearly gave up. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would, that you would show us this and that you would allow us to understand what this means in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.